0: Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessing, Allah be upon you all. Welcome once again here in Dive Show. You're listening to Aniku Rahman and uh, I'm speaking from the radio Voice of Islam. Welcome uh, once again. Uh, you know, as we are uh, live every day for two hours from four to six, and we discuss different topics where uh, we discuss uh, religious and other worldly topic and affairs which are taking place, and having a discussion, and you know, getting some guests on our show, and you know, taking their uh, insight and their views on it, and you know what they've studied and how they think uh, that uh, you know it should be or what is the right way or what is the solution of that, and what you know going on uh, in that particular field. Today, uh, we'll be discussing another very, very important topic, which is related to green energy. I think everybody's speaking about it. All countries are, you know, trying their best uh, to become, you know, uh, green and uh, whatever can be done to protect the environment, all the nations are working on it. But as we, as last week we discussed, are they doing enough? And we have discussed in depth. And uh, we had some guests who discuss with us what has been done and what could be done. Because the awareness is need of the time, and if the awareness is done properly, definitely you will see the change. Hence today once again we'll be discussing green energy and specifically we'll be discussing what does the European Green Deal mean for Africa. For that we will be having two guests who will be speaking. Uh, to, our, to us and uh, of course it will be beneficial for our listeners to understand more about g- green energy and what you know uh, what, does re- what does European Green Deal mean uh, for Africa. There's a saying of the Holy Prophet uh, peace be upon him that commands Muslims to safeguard the environment the Prophet peace be upon him said the world is sweet and green And verily, Allah has appointed you as a representative and trustee over it. As if we take this saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, we understand that God has given this land to us. Somehow, in some ways, we have to put our part. We have to take care of this world. If we do not live as you know, we should be living at the. If we are not protecting how we should be protecting this, you know, our society, our world, then definitely we'll see changes. That's what we are seeing actually in the world. The heat waves coming. There are fires in you know forest, There are where they used to be cold. Now the weather is slightly is going uh, warmer and warmer. So the thing is, the climate change is there. There's a reason behind it the things are changing transition is happening for that it is our duty to understand that what was missing what we have done wrong what can be done you know uh in to 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 protect our environment and for that as i mentioned the hadith the saying of the holy prophet peace be upon him the world is sweet and green and verily really allah has appointed you as a representative and trustee over it so indeed it's our duty, it's everyone's duty, regardless if you know we are the head of the country, if we are head of, you know, any society, any community, any area. It is duty and we are duty bound towards to, to protect the environment of this world and you know to, to, to live in a better condition for the people who will come after us. So we are, you know, as I mentioned, however, you know, witnessing rapid environmental changes uh, as I mentioned, uh, other things there's a rising sea levels, you know, unprecedented heat waves, drought and floods as well. And combating climate change poses one of the greatest challenge of our time. And there is an urgency, and countries are, you know, they're they're under pressure to take immediate action, looking for ways of uh, you know uh, taking on the climate crisis by decreasing carbon emission. And Europe has laid out its climate goals into so-called European Green Deal. I'll repeat myself, you know, the European, uh, Europe has laid out its climate goals in the so-called European Green Deal while the European Green Deal introduces policies for EU member states. It does have a wider global impact on other countries as well. For Europe's green transition, There is increased demand in critical raw minerals, CRM, many of which are imported from Africa. So what can other countries expect as Europe transitions from fossil fuels to renewable energy? So stay with us. We'll discuss the implications Europe's Green Deal has for Africa. And for that, we will be having our guest, Uh, Who will be discussing us? But before that, you know the European deal is a set of policies that aim to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 55% compared to 1990 levels by you know by third 2030, and to ultimately reach net zero emissions by the year 2050. The EU is Africa's largest trade partner. In 2019 the EU imported 842,362 million barrels of crude oil worth 46.7 billion from African countries. It's a huge number. If you look into it, the EU is you know, the largest trade partner, as I mentioned earlier. And even only in 2019, the EU has imported 842,362 million barrels of crude oil which is worth 46.7 billion from african countries with the you know introduction of uh, the, the the green deal however the demand for critical raw materials crm is expected to increase significantly uh with an increase by factor 13 for graphite 14 for you know cobalt and almost 60 of lithium by 2050 moreover does the European deal under the title Farm to Fork include policy regarding sustainable global food standards which need to be fulfilled for produce to be sold to the European market, which also, which also bears the risk of, you know, protectionism for Africa, denying its countries access to the EU's market, while there will be less demand for fossil fuels. The numbers on critical raw min- minerals suggest as economic opportunity for Africa, the continent most rich in natural and mineral resources. All in all, we see uh, we, we can see that the European Green Deal, introducing new policies and restructuring its energy supply, will invertibly have a significant impact on Africa you know uh one thing i would say here you know whatever we have been doing if we are dealing with someone if we are trading with any uh between the countries or between each other the principle if we are fair that whatever we are earning we should give a good share to the other partner as well and i think that's why it come came up once again the green energy the policies whether you know the way the money is distributing or the way, you know, the Africa is providing the, the minerals, the, you know, something is very important. It's not a small thing that a country has minerals and the, all of them is going out of country. And are they getting sufficient, you know, return on this so they can have a better life, better country? If, in, in a case, of if they are just giving up and they are just giving everything out without having, you know, the good, good returns, and definitely, they are giving everything but getting nothing. So it is, again, important whenever, you know, that this is the teachings of Islam, that whenever you do any kind of trade or any kind of, uh, you know, deal, it should be fair. There should be, you know, equal, uh, you know, equality, rather than a person who is has power, is taking everything, a person who th- who is a bit weak and... Uh, you know, he has to face all the burden. So it is very important whenever we do a deal, it should be done in, um, in, in, in 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 a good way. Over here, I would like to mention the khalif, you know, in regard to developed countries, dealing with the third world countries, has said something. And I would like to, uh, you know, read it before you. His Holiness said that, Today we are seeing many first-world countries increasing their investments in the poorer and developing nations. It is imperative that they act with justice and seek to help those nations and not merely utilize their natural resources and cheap labor f- forces for their own national gains and profit making. The Khalifa further said, "The affluent nations." should seek to reinvest the majority of what they earn in poorer countries and use the wealth to help the local people develop and to flourish. If the developed countries act in this way, it will not just be of benefit to the poorer nations, but will prove mutually beneficial. It will increase trust and confidence and remove frustrations that are building up. It will be a means of improving the local economies and so in turn will elevate the world's economy and financial health. This was this is the address which he gave at Dutch Parliament. In the Khalif of Ahmadiyya Muslim Association, of the Khalif of Islam, Ahmadiyya, he is there to guide us in every single step. And we see the, you know, the advice he has given is very important if you are earning from that country invest in that country so poor people can benefit uh, from that and that's how the business should be done Uh, for to discuss this topic further we'll be having our first guest dr vijay ramachandran he is with us dr vijay is a director for energy and development at the breakthrough institute and non resistant fellow at the Center for Global Development. He's with us. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. And thank you very much for joining us today. Uh,
1: good, good, good evening to you. Uh, I'm, I'm actually a Shia. Okay, I'm Bidya. very. <laughs> uh, it's, it's,
0: it's, it's Vijaya, right?
1: Yes, correct. Okay. correct. Nice My bad. You. Okay,
0: so no, she. No, don't worry, okay, no for the listeners, yes, Dr. Vijaya, she is with us today. And uh, I welcome her in the show. And thank you very much for joining us. To discuss, you thank know, you the,
1: so much for having me. Uh,
0: thank you very much. Uh, if we, you know, move on, we are discussing, as you must have heard a bit of it, that you know we are discussing the the Green Deal which Europe has done to yeah. to to Africa. I have some questions. You know, why are developed countries pushing Africa towards decarbonisation? Are we witnessing forms of green colonialism in European approach towards Africa?
1: Yes, in my opinion, that is what we are experiencing. Um, I find it very, very unfair that um, European governments are pushing Africans to invest in renewables only, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: uh, only in wind and solar, when in Europe itself, no one is doing that. Uh, European governments are buying oil, they are opening new coal mines, they are buying large quantities of natural gas, Uh, They are investing in all kinds of fossil fuels, uh, but they are insisting that uh, they will only finance projects in Africa that are uh, wind and solar. Uh, I find this very unfair. I think it's uh, very inequitable. Uh, You know, as you know, 600 million people in sub-Saharan Africa do not have access to electricity Mm. uh, and restricting uh, the choices of Africans while we in the rich countries do whatever we want is, is very, very unfair.
0: That's very much true, actually. I've been myself to Africa and see, I think, the resources they have, but I think everything is coming out rather than they are using. So I think there should be a fair deal rather than this. If we discuss further, how important are fossil fuels for Africa's energy supply and economic growth?
1: It's a very good question. You know, African governments largely are moving away from coal. They do not see coal as central to their economic development. But they do see natural gas as extremely important uh, for their economic development, for providing electricity, for providing energy for other purposes, such as building roads or for transportation or for cold storage. Um, this is the, uh, the issue that uh, has become a source of tension between, um, between African governments and, and the West. Uh, Western governments, Europe and the United States, are putting limits on how much um, financing they would provide for natural gas projects. And that's, uh, as I mentioned earlier, unfair, as well as it really hampers uh, the economic development of Africa. Now, Africa is sitting on 600 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, a third of that is in Nigeria, and every government that has gas reserves wants to develop these reserves to provide electricity. So to answer your question, it's extremely important um, for them to be able to at least develop some of their gas reserves to provide um, energy for their people.
0: Very much true. You know, uh, uh, as a, I'll, say, I'll, I'll say one thing once again. You know, um, I've been to Burkina Faso once, and I've seen, yeah. as we're discussing, uh, the, of course there's a gold mines there. And I've seen all the countries, all the, you know, the planes from different European countries were in queue to get gold and fill up and just leave the country i understand what you're saying and i think that they have a potential and uh, the, the thing i want to ask you what are they doing to protect their deal are is there any you know they've been having discussion on this would you be able to tell something is there any change coming into the deal or will it remain same
1: You know, I think African governments are pushing back very Mm. hard against this sort of European kind of colonial attitude. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Um, And I think it is having some effect. Uh, Five African heads of state have written op-eds in Western newspapers saying that, you know, restricting energy developments in Africa is forcing Africans to remain poor. Um, And they also point out the issue that you just raised, which is that European governments are very happy to invest in fossil fuels in Africa if it's for themselves. Mm. So, you know, if Germany wants more natural gas from from Senegal, which it has indicated that it, it, it needs the, the gas that Senegal has, it's quite happy to invest um, in the offshore gas reserves of Senegal. So when it comes to their own self-interest, whether it be gold or critical minerals or mm. oil or natural gas, Um, European governments and Western governments more broadly have seen Africa as a source you know to meet their own needs it's when it comes to Africans themselves wanting to extract these resources for their own purposes that you start to see all this kind of green colonialism about you know how we need to save um, the environment and climate change is important and so on and so they're not you know willing to provide the financing I think that type of hypocrisy. Um, is repeatedly being exposed. Uh, There are researchers such as myself who have have, uh, made this uh, argument. There are many African researchers who have repeatedly um, said that Africa needs to develop its energy reserves and that um, these types of sort of colonial attitudes towards extraction of resources has to end. Uh, So my view is that uh, we will see some changes. I don't think uh, European governments and the United States can get away with extracting whatever they want and then restricting what Africans can do. I, I, I don't think that is a viable position going forward. I don't think it's going to be something that African governments or African citizens will tolerate.
0: Hopefully, I think that's what we're uh, hoping to, you know, to, <laughs> to see Africa prosper. Uh yes. Moving on uh, to our, uh, you know, another question I have for you. Um, how, how do you believe, you know, Europeans or Europe's climate goals will affect Africa? How are, you know, the, how are vulnerable communities affected uh, because of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if Europeans will not allow um, Africa to finance its gas reserves, uh, that means that, you know, communities will stay poor Um, everybody needs energy to develop you need energy to build schools and roads and hospitals you need electricity to keep uh, those institutions running you know people need electricity when they kids need it when they study in school people need it in hospitals when they're sick so I think preventing energy projects from moving forward in Africa will keep vulnerable communities poor it will mean that there's sort of uh, it's much harder to alleviate poverty And and I think also this kind of selective, um, you know, we'll extract resources for for ourselves but not allow you to do it for yourself also means that uh, communities where these resources are located Uh, do not benefit. You know, the the point you made earlier about the gold mines. Um, I think all of this has to change. You know, this kind of um, colonial attitude must change. And I will say that African governments are being very vocal about this and in particular at the climate change summits called COP um, they have been very vocal that they need to benefit uh, from their own resources and that vulnerable communities and and poor countries in general need more energy. Uh, They need to be able to sort of get the revenues of these projects. Uh, So I do think that uh, their voices are are stronger. They're speaking in unison, and um, at climate change summits, they are making themselves heard. And uh, you do find, you know, um, even European heads of state acknowledge that the rules to combat climate change are being applied very unevenly. And they are policing the poorest rather than the richest, where all the consumption occurs.
0: Indeed, indeed. You know, if if it was up to you, what would you change? How, or where do you see problems in the current path Europe and other rich countries are taking? And uh, you know, what so, could you know, n- yeah. you know what could you know just and effective climate action look like?
1: Yeah, you know, that's the that's the, really a great question. I think two things. Um, I would say in the rich countries, the European countries, the US, uh, others, Australia, that's where we need to really take steps to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels. We are the ones consuming most fossil fuels. We are the ones emitting the most carbon, those of us who live in rich countries. And that's where steps can be taken, new technologies can be introduced. Um, you know, We can make the switch into solar and wind and also into nuclear, which is clean and safe and um, and uh, generates a lot of power on a continuous basis. And for the poorest countries, many of which are in Africa, we need to give them the most flexibility. So, you know, any remaining carbon budget we have should be for them. They should be ones who have the uh, opportunity to develop some gas reserves, to develop uh, some fossil fuels that they need uh, for their economic development, understanding that they can't do all of it. With wind and solar, I think if we can move to a system that's much more sensible, where we we cut back on fossil fuel consumption, where the consumption is the most, which is in rich countries, and we give poor countries the most flexibility, that would be much more fair than what we are seeing now.
0: Uh, indeed, uh, Dr. Vijaya, one thing you know for our listeners, for the benefit of our listeners, the deal which is happening is a European versus. Uh, you know africa or is it they are dealing country to country
1: ah it's a good question you know i think it's mostly applied in a fairly blanket way across all sub-saharan african countries and it's because those countries require often require foreign guarantors for borrowing Um, and so european governments and european multilateral institutions are able to impose kind of blanket bans on all the countries that require financing for natural gas. And, and a lot of those are in Africa. So unfortunately, it has, it has become kind of a one-size-fits-all situation with very few exceptions. It would, it would be a little bit more fair if this was looked at country by country. But my sense is that that is not the case.
0: Mm. Hopefully, uh, we'll see the change. I think the Africans are uh, you know fighting for them now. I think it's the first time I've seen them coming up and, uh, you know, saying for the for, for their people. I think it's very good. I think it's a good uh, change uh, we are seeing, uh, yeah. you know, the, for African-African leaders. Uh, anyhow, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Vijaya, for, uh, you know, coming us and giving your time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. I hope our listeners have, uh, you know, understood more, uh, you know, the, on this topic. I think nobody speaks that much on green energy it was happening with Africa and Europe. Um, again, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah,
0: have a nice evening. You too. Bye bye. So you were listening to Dr. Uh, Vijaya. Uh, she was with her. Uh, she was with us, and she was discussing the you know what's kind of deal that happened between. Europe and Africa and she has discussed this topic in in depth and you know I hope our listeners have benefited from this and had a good understanding that what is been happening or what should you know uh, what kind of change should be there and uh, how you know the deal is moving forward. and we hope to see. Africa prosper. I think that is is the fair deal, and it would be unfair that we, a person, you know, the Islam does not say that, you know, if if a richer is becoming richer and poorer is becoming poorer, this is not the solution. This is absolutely, uh, really wrong. And I think we're living in a society that we should be, what what kind of whatever we deal we're doing, it should be you know this is a fair deal for uh, for both parties, and that's how both can prosper. And you know, one brother is you know, is behind, and other is just wanted to have to keep uh, you know want want to keep his space, and doesn't want to stop for others. That means you know he's uh, uh, not want to take care of his brother. I don't want to use any word, uh, but I think it would be better if they are discussing. They come up uh, with the, the solution and have a better deal with each other. You know, moving on uh, to the topic, as we were <clears throat> discussing before and giving more, you know, um, information about Green Deal. One thing is, you know, should Africa transition to Green Deal? Is it transition or not? So Africa, um, you know, contribute less than 3% of greenhouse emission but is most affected by extreme climate change shocks affecting its agricultural productivity leading to food shortages and result in high food prices, but also high energy prices due to its use of hydroelectricity. I think it's a long topic. We will be discussing this. Let's uh, uh, go back. I think we have another guest with us uh, now. Um, Dr. Alberto Matran uh, He's with us. Um, Dr. Albert, I would like to introduce you. Know, there is a professor at the University of Granada, Spain, in the Department of Urban and Espatial Planning. Uh, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Thank you very much, Dr. Albert, for joining us today.
4: Assalamu alaikum, good afternoon. Thanks a lot for the good afternoon. invitation.
0: Yeah, thank you very much um, for taking out some time for us. Uh, I would like to you know, ask some questions from you. That very first thing I would like to ask you who are the victims and the, who are the profiteers? of the transition to renewable energy, and what role do big corporations play in this?
4: Well, in this case, following the old colonialism method, the victims are the peoples of the Global South and other peripheries that have mineral resources in their land that are important for the energy transition. And also those people that are living in places with good conditions to produce and transport renewable energies, including areas with high wind and insulation. And of course, other areas with available fresh water to produce hydrogen and ammonia. And the profiteers as always are mainly the old players of the fossil and nuclear industries that are responsible of the climate emergency and the energy crisis we have, but are now leading the energy transition. And with them, the elites of the global north are also profiteers of this process because they will follow their unsustainable lives. Only for a while, which is a question now on, on, the, on the energy crisis we're suffering. And this way, big corporations are playing once again an extractive role, including an intensification of their colonial attitudes. This uh, includes as well different forms of violence, disregard of local population, local knowledges, cultures, and of course, religions.
0: Indeed, you know how vulnerable the communities of Africa are, and how and, and they're globally affected by Europe's transition to green energy. Are they vulnerable communities in Africa?
4: Yeah, definitely. Uh, those local communities. Are uh, that are affected by this energy transition are mainly the local communities that are owning or are settled in the land that will be used for producing, to produce renewable energies. Mainly uh, in this case, those who, as I said before, those who have, uh, let's say, these, these, these places where, where there's wind and, and, and sun. In this case, land grabbing is a key question because the energy megaprojects need large amounts of land to produce energy. In particular, we can see that, for example, in the Western Sahara that is is occupied by Morocco and in the wind farms in the Lake Turkana in Kenya. In addition to this, Europe is demanding uh, key materials for the energy transition. Mm -hmm. So communities are living in the places where they already found these resources will gain almost nothing, and they will suffer all the impacts of mining, such as land grabbing again, uh, soil, air, and water pollution, even far away from the mines, and of course the idea again of violence, corruption, and lack of autonomy. Uh, according to this, let's say that in 2021, there were six military coups in Africa. It means four times more than the average in the last 20 years. That was 1.5% let's say one and a half military cops per year. Why do we have this this kind of uh, political and social instability with military interventions in these African countries? Because uh, military cops are really well uh, are related all the time with geopolitical questions, ge- geopolitical struggles for resources. And in this case, this struggle has deepened because of the new demand of uh, minerals and rare minerals for the energy transition, mainly in Europe, but also in other parts of the world. For example, we have the military coup in Guinea-Conakry, which is the main supplier of aluminum for the European Union, which means 64% of the total European Union demand. Or we can talk about gold mines in Niger Niger and Sudan, which are other two countries where they have a military coup in 2021 and are still under military and, and war threats.
0: You're very much true. You know, uh, I was mentioning before the guest was who was before you that I went to Africa and I visited Burkina Faso and I've seen myself uh, the planes of European countries as on the queue and waiting to get uh, gold in them and <laughs> take back to the countries. Uh, things are there, and indeed, you know, the communities are not getting benefit from, from that. Uh, no, let's, like yeah, certainly. Let's move on to the, the next question. I would like to ask you, you know, what, um, you know, are the colonial structures in place that prevent a just energy transition?
4: Well, the colonial structures uh, are the traditional ones that, that we have, No, know, so which means that political, military and Economic institutions of the global North are also, and also on the international level, that are always pushing to guarantee the enormous and sustainable and unsustainable demand of energy, which are the main, the main institutions. And we can add there these new institutions around environment, or uh, big global institutions around environment that are pushing the African countries and also the south of the world to do the environmental transition. But this corporate environmental transition, as we call, it's a transition that is based on a new kind of colonialism. A colonialism would be the green colonialism. It means that now, again, the international organizations on environment also are uh, acting as colonial institutions. And uh, not only in terms of in, in in the field of energy, but also in other in other questions such as conservation and and so on. So, these kind of institutions are are are, are the main part of this of this question, or that are not uh, facilitating or are preventing this just energy transition in the in the global south, or also at global level in the global north. And second, there's there's a second actor that is that are the big corporations of the energy sector that again are the main actors of the centralized and colonial energy transition based on extractivist extractivist uh, mega projects this uh, those big corporations are uh, developing this this process so our global institutions and north of the world institutions that are, are preventing just energy transitions because they have strong business or strong economic interests
0: indeed um. Then what needs to be changed? Then you know how do we prevent exploitation and human rights abuses while Europe implements, you know, its climate policy? It is changing and try to be green as much as they can. So what needs to be changed to prevent all these?
4: Well, the first question that we need to address as soon as possible mm. is the a, a an overall reduction of the energy consumption. A uh, key question here is that it will happen anyway, because it's, it's not possible to produce the energy that we are consuming now with fossil fuels uh, Produce, produced by renewable energies. True. So it will happen in any case. So as soon as we do that, the less the destruction, the less the, the problems for the global south and, and the vulnerable, vulnerable people. So this is the first, uh, the first step, the main question here, to reduce the use of energy, the energy consumption. The second one will need to develop uh, decentralized and distributed electric systems that are easily to develop with renewable energies. It's not easy to have this kind of system with nuclear power, which is dangerous and polluter, and it's, it needs to be centralized, such as the fossil fuel industry, right? It needs to be centralized. But with renewable energies, we could have a decentralized production of energy. Uh, it could be. Uh, close to the centers of, of consumption, it could be owned by the communities, and it could help people to have their own their own energy in terms of electric electricity. And it will need less resources, less investment, and and less uh, le- of course no land grabbing, right? So this this could be a, a, a second a second step. The third step is that we will need to develop again. Uh, non-electric infrastructure based on renewable resources. It, it means that we are not, we don't need to focus all the time only on electricity, but we should also focus on uh, elec- uh, energy that is not uh, electric in this case. So we could use energy directly for other sources, uh, renewable sources. Uh, of course, I'm not talking about fossil fuels, which is something, fossil fuels that is something that has, has already uh, threaten uh, our war <laughs> and, and mainly countries of the south of the war, and again vulnerable people of the south of the world that are mainly affected by by the climate change emergency that we are suffering now
0: true true one thing uh, you know i have in my mind i don't know whether you would be able to answer i just would like to ask you All if right. you can about the electric right. cars <laughs> you know they are huh. thinking to make a huge change you know it's not a small thing if we have millions of cars on the road in the Europe, do we think that we have enough energy to, you know, recharge them?
4: Not, not really. Uh, there's there's a problem on energy, hmm. but the main problem with electric cars is a problem of materials, right? Exactly. And electric cars need a lot more materials. There there are different uh, researchings on that, but saying that four times more materials, more minerals than a combustion car which is something uh, really mm. problematic, and mm. also a large, uh, not only in terms of quantity, but in terms of the type of materials and the type of minerals. That's why we are funding all these military corps in Africa, because they are, they are trying to, to, to extract um, different types of materials for this kind of, of development. So it's not a problem of quantity, but also the, the problem of diversity. Of minerals. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in the European Union, for example, in, it has an extra a, a strategy to uh, for what they call critical materials for the energy transition, which is named based on the electrification of the transport system and also on the possibilities to produce energy through renewable energies, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, according to the data, they they have scenarios in 2030 and 2050 to uh, let's say increase four times or even ten times uh, the demand of these critical materials like lithium, like uh, well materials that are important for the energy transition, like co- lithium for batteries, copper for uh, for the wires, for the distribution networks. So that's that's really limiting the process of developing the electric the electric transport system. So this is. Another another key question when we are talking about about this. So the electric transport system will be reduced, it will not be never uh, as big as it is now. The combustion-based uh, transport system.
0: Hmm. Yeah, indeed. I don't know whether it will go ahead or not. People are seeing the electric cars, but I think people are looking for another means to have a better, you know, better idea to to protect this transportation system, isn't it?
4: Well, that the question here is that we will need to avoid using uh, as much as possible using mm-hmm. individual transport system, particular cars or yeah. uh, private cars. So we'll need to to follow other transport systems, True. and we will need to to reorganize our cities and our territory is trying to reduce the, the, this kind of mobility it's already a problematic in terms of land use, it's problematic in, in terms of pollution now mm. and it's problematic uh, in terms of the, of the energy and, and material needs if we use it with electricity and that will be limiting this, this process so it will happen in, in any case so, so <laughs> the sooner we do the, the better we will have the future That's the question now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, true. It's very much right. Hopefully, let's see. We'll see the changes and see how it goes. And uh, by the way, thank you very much for uh, uh, joining us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And I hope our listeners must have uh, benefited uh, what you've answered. Thank you very much for joining us
4: today. Thank you very much. And I hope you're
0: enjoying the weather in Granada. (laughs) <laughs> in Spain. Uh, yeah, Spain
4: well I'm actually in the UK. Oh, I'm, in I'm, UK I'm an academic visitor in Cambridge so <laughs> okay. I'm actually in the UK so. okay, wait, wait, wait. we are missing enjoying <laughs> the, the English weather <laughs> yeah. you're enjoying well, that in... climate change yeah that's true. climate change affecting the south the south of Europe the vulnerable areas of Europe the yeah, poor indeed. areas so that, yeah. that that we have to tackle yeah, <laughs> so we have right. to address that yeah well, whatever <laughs> trying let's see. thank you very man. much
0: for joining thank you
4: thanks a lot. good afternoon thank you thank you
0: so uh, you were listening uh, to one of our guests, Dr. Alberto, and uh, he discussed, uh, you know, the different, uh, th- you touched the green deals and how you know Africa it's affected by the green deals and what is what is happening on on this. So hopefully uh, you have uh, you know benefited from that. Now we'll again, uh, you know, I'll give you a bit of more information about, you know, should Africa transition to green energy? Is it transition? Is it something is going to happen? So Africa contributes less than 3% of greenhouse emissions, but is most affected by extreme climate change shocks, affecting its agricultural productivity, leading to food shortages and resulting in high food prices, but also high energy prices due its use of hydroelectricity. To cope with the climate shocks, Africa intend to build a climate-shock-resilient economy. 80% of Africa's energy is based on fossil fuels, which 20% are, are forms of renewable energy, such as hydro, solar power, and geothermal. Only 40% of African households even have access to electricity. Some say that Africa needs to aim for a green transition, but it, is it justified for those who emit significantly more CO2 to point to Africa and demand that a continent that only contributes 3% of green gas emission transition to renewables. So, you know, if we discuss uh, further the example of exploitation, the mining, for Africa to benefit, you know, from, Afri- from Europe, green transition, it would require for both to be equal trade partners, as was saying earlier, but unfortunately we see many injustices happening. One example would be the mining of cobalt, which is mineral that is crucial toward green energy transition, as it is used in batteries for electric vehicles. The Democratic Republic of Congo (DRC) is the world's largest supplier of cobalt. cobalt. Producing 60% to 70%, of which up to one fifth of it is produced through, you know, uh, uh, artisanal mining. Cobalt mining is associated with exploitation of workers. In 2021, 2,000, 200,000, and uh, uh, colonies were mining cobalt, uh, earning less than two pound per day in dangerous working conditions such as collapsing tunnels around 40000 of the miners were children so we see that what how you know, the way they are working there what they are getting getting in return you know the the, the, the the countries the which have wealth they are becoming more richer and people giving up their lives even then what they are earning just 2 pounds per day and you know If we are working the same thing here, people might be charging 20 pounds for an hour. So we need to understand that what they are giving to us, we are not returning. We have to be just for them as well. The verse of the Holy Quran comes to mind, you know, that admonishes to not acquire other people's wealth through injustice. God Almighty says, and do not devour your wealth among yourselves through falsehood and offer it not as bribe to the authorities that you may knowingly devour a part of, of, of the wealth of other people with injustice. Additionally, you know, cobalt mining comes along with pollution and can cause breathing problems. Workers are affected by a number of health issues due to toxic chemicals and gases, accidents, you know, over exertion and violence. But the miners continue their work as they are economically reliant on it cobalt mining has a considerable impact on the environment pollution from mining also affect waters mines that are also have vast amount of uranium have high radioactive levels what can we do then you know this is a very much important question so there are ways of developing batteries without cobalt uh, or you know nickel using lithium iron but would most likely not solve the problem. To shift from cobalt to lithium in the end would just lead to more environmental problems and exploitation elsewhere. It seems there truly is no environmentally friendly car after all. Maybe the best advice is, the, is sometimes avoid driving and just walk. The Khalif of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community a while ago said fuel consumption should also be reduced. Now, people have become so lazy that if they want to go to from one place to another place and the distance is only 100 yards or 200 yards, instead of walking to the place, they use their motorbike or car. In this way, pollution is increasing. There are so many other factors which are also causing pollution and climate change, so we have to be very caref- careful. So, the instruction is there, what we need to do. We have to understand that we have duty towards this world we're living in and we have to protect it. You know, in conclusion, Europe should certainly, you know, go ahead with its climate goals, but not exploit other countries in the process. It should focus on its number states first when it comes to reducing emission rather than taking the message of green energy to African countries who emit comparatively little CO2. And Europe and other developed countries need to deal with just as when it comes to trade with Africa, it is very important. Regardless, if it's with Africa and any other third world countries. You know, any developed country, regardless Europe or any other we see in the world, whenever they do a deal, they have to do with justice. You know, especially when we're discussing the Africa. You know, they should. If yeah, you are discussing but this deal, Europe and other developed countries need to deal with justice when it comes to trade with Africa. And otherwise, there's a risk that a green transition will be at the expense of the most vulnerable and that's what i think we should not be doing and we should be you know we have to be fair to both and uh, i hope our listeners have benefited from today's show and they have understood that what is green deal is how it's working for europe and how you know it is it is it, it, is good for africa or not and what can be done to make it work and make it work better for both parties, and on this, uh, I would like to, <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, take a short break of news break, and uh, you will be back after the news break. Please join us after the short news break.
5: Our beloved master, Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was very careful in the kind treatment of women, that those that were not accustomed. To seeing women as helpmates and counsels found it difficult to accommodate to these lofty standards that the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him wanted to establish in a muslim society Hazrat umar may allah be pleased with him says that his wife would try to counsel him in his affairs and he would stop her by saying that the arabs did not permit women to intervene in their affairs. And she would respond that the wives of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, used to counsel him in his affairs. Why don't you try to be like him? Meaning the Holy Prophet sallam Encouraging the Muslim society to give due regard to the upbringing of women, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that if you are blessed with daughters, then make proper arrangements for their education and take pain in their upbringing. And if you did that, and Allah the almighty would save you from the torment of fire.
2: Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the drive time show here on the Voice of Islam radio. In this part of the show we are speaking or we're going to our next topic which is about uh, Muharram, the the battle of uh, of Karbala. Now, the, the holy month of Muharram, actually, uh, Muharram is, a, is one of the Islamic months uh, or in, in the Islamic calendar, one of the months in the Islamic calendar. In fact, it's the first month of the Islamic calendar. And generally, across the world, the new year is a very sort of, you know, a happy, a happy occasion, a joyous occasion, as people celebrate a, a sort of a, a, a new beginning. Although Muslims share these feelings of happiness um, the month of Muharram also brings a very sort of a, a painful and a grim reminder Of one of the greatest tragedies in the history of Islam One of the darkest days recorded in uh, in Islamic history And that was that the beloved grandson of the Holy Prophet Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him Hazrat Imam Hussain May Allah be pleased with him Along with his family and also some some dear companions May Allah be pleased with all of them. Were mercilessly martyred on the fields of uh, of Karbala. Now, this is something that we're going to be speaking about. So, join us as we, you know, find out the significance of the, you know, of the months of uh, of this month in Islam, and we talk about the background of the the Battle of Karbala in which this incident actually took place, and understand the great status of uh, Imam Hussain. Uh, may Allah be pleased with him. Uh, as well, so that's uh, that's what we're going to be speaking about now. In order to understand this history, this, you know this this key historical event, we'll start by looking at the state of Islam after the sad demise of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Now, His Holiness, you know the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, may Allah be pleased with him, Hazrat mizam Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with him, he has been, you know, for a number of years now, he has been telling us the incidents of about different companions and for about over a year or so he has been speaking about uh, you know the the four rightly guided khulafa the caliphs who came after the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him anyone who's been listening to those friday sermons can have will have a better understanding about uh, you know what the state of affairs was what were the different uh, battles which uh, which happened how was islam spread and all of the different things as well the, mart- the martyrdom of uh, of uh, hussain uh, may god be pleased with him was a continuation from the martyrdom of the third caliph Hazrat usman may Allah be his helper and this was the time when the dissension had begun uh, to take forward in islam you know different parties were were, were forming different blocks were forming now the second caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community, His Holiness the Hazrata Bishrul Mahmood Ahmed be pleased with him, eloquently explains the reason for rising animosity during that time. In fact, he's written a book, "Dissension: The Outset of Dissension in Islam," Islam ehtilafat kharaz, and he, and that has been translated into English. And you know, you can go and uh, read that book and read different chapters which are dedicated. Uh, To this particular event as well. He states that certain people who were not complete in their faith became envious upon witnessing the honor, status, success, and authority of the companions. Because Islam was spreading, because Islam was progressing, it was, um, you know, it was, uh, it had a proper ground, a proper authority, and people, some weak minded people, in fact, some, some, uh, some hypocrites, as well as some uh, some disbelievers, they they were they were envious. In fact, they were jealous for this as well. And such a hostile environment continued during the Caliphate of Hazrat Ali, who was the fourth rightly guided Caliph. May Allah be pleased with him. And due to similar reasons, as uh, as you know, as I just mentioned. Now he was the cousin, Hazrat Ali. May Allah be pleased with him. He was the cousin of the Holy Prophet. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And he was also martyred, um, uh, uh, as well. In you know, his, 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 in fact, the second, the third, and the fourth caliph they were all martyred. And he was also married as as well as being the cousin of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He was married to the righteous daughter uh, of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, as well as Fatima, may Allah be pleased with her. And uh, he was also a father. Uh, to Imam Hassan and Hussain may Allah be pleased with both of them now ultimately this animosity led to uh, his unfortunate assassination his martyrdom when he was fatally attacked on his way to the to the mosque and it was Yazid's ascension to the throne which led to the the cruelest and most painful event in the history of Islam in fact Yazid did not possess a, a pious character nor was he divinely appointed. He wasn't a Caliph. He wasn't divinely appointed and a self-made, self-made leader as well. And due to this, number of companions, including uh, Husan, did not accept him. And after the demise of Hazrat uh, Hassan, may Allah be pleased with him, Yazid's men were, were compelling Hazrat um and his family, along with the, the followers, the companions, to accept Yazid as the Caliph. But of, co- of course, as he was not rightly guided, as he was not even a pious person in fact the promised messiah upon whom be peace has called him Yazid Palid Um, you know Palid in Urdu means uh, unholy unholy, unpure, unholy so you know he was a very uh, you know a bad person and uh, to in fact you can even say a tyrant of enforcing people forcing people, dictator, forcing people to accept him as the leader which of course the Muslims were not going to do that
6: So, the Hazrat Imam Hussain uh, obviously um, did not accept him uh, as a caliph uh, and uh, in order to avoid, um, you know, any bloodshed or anything, so he he actually went out of Mecca Mm. uh, and uh, after which uh, he he himself was invited by the people in, uh, you know, in Kufa. Uh, Kufa, uh, you know, obviously it is it is um, uh, in Iraq, <coughs> and uh, so there are lots of people. The, the Muslims they they had been, um, you know, they have been living there because Hazrat Ali, during the time of Hazrat uh, the Caliphate of Hazrat Ali, the fourth Caliph, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, he actually changed the capital from Medina to Kufa. And um, so because of mm-hmm. that, I mean, there are a lot, a lot of Muslims, lots of followers or lots of people who were sincere to Hazrat Ali. And because of Imam Hassan and Hassan, they were, they were um, sons of uh, Hazrat Ali, uh, may Allah be pleased with him. So they, they showed their uh, faithfulness, their loyalty to Hazrat Imam Hussain And they invited him mm. that they should come uh, to Kufa and they will be willing to accept him as a caliph. Hmm. Uh, as their leader, um, he actually he had sent his Hazrat uh, um, uh, 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 Muslim bin Aqeel um, to um, to Kufa to uh, sort of uh, um, uh, see what's what's the state of affairs there, um, just to check what's the situation there, and. Uh, Apparently, the people in um, Kufa at that time they they welcomed him, Muslim mm. bin Nakheel, and and he had you know when the, on the initial assessment, Muslim bin Nakheel wrote a letter to Hazrat Imam Hussain mm. that the situation is okay, people are loyal to you and they are willing to accept you, so you come along. Now this letter was already sent, uh, but when Yazid came to know that Muslim bin Akil has gone to Kufa, He's gone to Kufa and Kufa, yeah. he is gathering people and who might turn against him and, and will not be willing to accept him as a Khalifa. So he, he sent his representative to Kufa and under his, uh, obviously, um, <coughs> threat from him, um, they actually killed uh, Muslim bin Akil. And and uh, because Hazrat Muslim bin Akil may Allah be pleased with him, he he was martyred there in Kufa, and um, the people who were apparently before that they were in favor of Hazrat Imam Hussain, under the uh, under the pressure from the from Yazid mm. and his uh, workers. Of course, of course, he had sent um, uh, people there. Um, they uh, they turned against Hazrat uh, Imam Hussain. And and in this situation, obviously, the, the Yazid, the, uh, when he he had found this situation, but Hazrat Imam uh, Hussain, although he knew the situation that uh, Muslim bin Akil has been killed, but he decided to go um, to Kufa uh, with. He a handful of companions and, and his only person is his personal family members mm. and, and he he actually and the, the total number of these people was 72 and uh, uh, I remember a poet has very, uh, you know, beautifully uh, Made a couplet in which he says that when those 72 were killed mm. The muslims got the punishment that they were divided into 72 sects mm. So he has related that in, 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 in a manner because these all these 72 people they uh, they uh, You they, they were a handful of people and Yazid, obviously he was uh, He had the army at that time and he he sent 4,000 an army of 4,000 people just to capture him hmm. So uh, what happened next was um, the most cruel and heartbreaking event in the history of Islam and that's what makes everybody sad particularly in the first 10 days of Muharram yeah because it was uh, he started his journey into, uh, you know in the beginning of Muharram and then on the 10th day of Muharram a fatal battle between and uh, you can imagine what kind of a battle it could be because these are poor people unarmed uh, traveling um, on a journey yeah. uh, it wasn't a fair it uh, wasn't and, a and it's all yeah. uh, ladies and and children and uh, Imam Hussein's family and uh, so despite that you know they, those who were able to fight they did fight till the end uh, and it is uh, is very uh, like heartbreaking um, incidents when you study into the details that they they stopped their water they couldn't drink the water because uh, the, the, you know when they went to take water from the river which was nearby. And um, and then in the most cruel manner, Hazrat Imam Hussain was martyred, uh, you know, on that uh, on the tenth of Muharram. So um, he, Hazrat Imam Hussain, obviously he was um, consumed by the love of God. He had uh, for the honor of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He suffered um, terribly. He, uh, you know, his wounds were. He got wounds from 45 arrows, Mm. 33 spears, and over 40 sword blows. And his body became disfigured, and his blessed head, which was once kissed by the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings Allah be upon him, Mm. it was severed from his body. And... uh, I
2: mean, it's, it's, it is like you mentioned. The more, the more you talk about it, the yeah, more. the more. Uh, yeah, it's it's,
6: it's, 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 it's it's a very sad, a very sad, uh, sad event which in actually Allah took place. Absolutely. You know,
2: there is so much, you know, so much uh, jealousy, you know, in in envy in those uh, those people who who just want to have power, and if they look at uh, if they look at. What uh, you know, if they look at the actions, would they have done the same thing in in front of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him? Those people who, you know, profess that yes, they are Muslims, but they are still doing the same thing. And in this day and age as well, we can put the same example uh, as this. You know, those people who are terrorists, those people who claim that yes, we are following following Islam, but when it comes to their practical example, when it comes to um, their doings, then, then how how contradictory uh, are they? Um, we, let's speak to let's speak to our guest who is on the line with us, who is an Imam, uh, Imam Marwan Gil, who is a missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community in uh, in Argentina. Very good friend of ours as well. Asalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Good afternoon and welcome to the show.
7: Asalamu alaikum, rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Uh, peace, uh, peace be upon you and thank you very much for the kind invitation.
2: Thank you so much for for taking time out uh, as well. Um to begin with, many, many Muslims are of the opinion that no festivities, no festivals, especially um you know the 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 arrangements of uh, of of marriage, such as uh, the nikah ceremony or marriage itself, it uh, should be should be sort of uh, refrained from as or well. should be postponed until these days pass. and then, um, we should do it at a later date. Is that is that is that true? And if, uh, if that is true, then what, why is that?
7: I think um, it's very important as Muslims always to um, be loyal and speak um, strongly, strictly um, the teachings and the sources of our religion. And In this I, I refer especially that we are blessed with the guidance of the Holy Qur'an, hmm. the Sunnah of the Holy Prophet Muhammad hmm. who hmm. himself lived and practiced the teachings of the Qur'an, and its verbal things, and then afterwards we have even a, a luxury a treasure in, in, in the form of the four guided khulafa hmm. and in there we don't find any clue or indication that one should not marry in certain time uh, during cer- certain time frame or also in this regard if you not take the, the incident of Karbala hmm. uh, we don't find any um, proper incidents About the direct progeny or children of uh, Imam Hussein, or afterwards, that they would introduce such ceremonies or such such rituals. And I think, even if we go back, um, I think for sure it is a tragic uh, and a a horrific incident, and it makes every Muslim really saddens his heart. But we find also similar incidents in the life of previous prophets who suffered, who had to um, bear great moments of um, cruelty and suffering but we don't find in any way that the Holy Prophet Muhammad even upon his own suffering would um, prohibit his followers to be to marry in certain moments or uh, to, to, to practice other rituals or ceremonies I mean like he was himself the person who suffered the most uh, even during the persecution in Mecca, mm. or also afterwards during several wars and battles against the uh, kuffar from Mecca. But at no point the Holy Prophet use this as a moment of mourning in such a way that he would prohibit his followers to carry out certain civil or personal um, ceremonies. Mm.
2: Very, very interesting. Um, when talking about the the actual battle which took place in uh, in, in Karbala, how do Muslims commemorate this uh, this event that took place?
7: I think nowadays um, we, we all see and we all know these images from television and also from different Islamic, um, from the Islamic world where we see mostly among Shia groups but also some other Muslim groups hmm. and denominations that they um, go out into streets or they organize uh, different manifestations in which uh, kind of they they express their sorrow and their grief by punishing themselves, many times by chanting or by hitting themselves Mm. um, to an extent that with chains or other metal um, tools um, to the point that um, their body starts bleeding. And they, in a way, um, justify that they want to, in this sense, um, stimulate the, the same suffering. Of Ahl al-Bayt and uh, Imam Hussein during the incident of Karbala. Hmm. So, in this sense, you have um, in one side these kind of um, expressions in the Islamic world, and also then you find also other um, Muslims who would go and um, or they organize different events where they speak about Karbala, and then um, you have the um, especially the way of. As Ahmadi Muslims guided by the Promised Messiah the, Islam, the Imam of the Age, and now then afterwards, by the guidance of his fifth successor, um, His Holiness Mirza mm-hmm. Maslub ahmad where we celebrate and commemorate um, the martyrdom in this sense of Imam Hussein and the horrific tragedy uh, of Karbala by uh, praying for his uh, for the elevation of his spiritual status And uh, we remember um, not only him but all the progeny, the spiritual and the physical progeny of the Holy Prophet Muhammad Mm. And we remember by sending the Roots, by invoking blessings and prayers upon the Holy Prophet Muhammad and all his um, children, progeny and uh, descendants. And um, I think for us it's important as well to take and pay heed to the message which uh, Imam Hussein left by his martyrdom, and it's a universal message, a universal teaching, um, as he showed us that um, in no circumstance we should um, we should accept the or we should um, let dominate the unjust the unjustness over our own uh, personal convictions. I mean, he by his martyrdom showed us and gave gave us the lesson that we should always stick um, to the justice, to the truth in this sense that he did not have any personal grudge against Yazid. He did not fight out of any um, political ambitions against them. What he considered was the truth is that he considered that the spiritual institution of caliphate cannot be inherited uh, or passed on as as a part of a monarchy from one person to another. He was convinced that to be a spiritual caliph, a professor of the Holy Prophet, Muhammad, the person has to be appointed and chosen by God through the will of people. Mm. And stick or uh, convinced of his principles, that is the reason why he rejected to um, perform the bad of the Yazid. And by this he showed us that also we, I think, as a Muslim, um, the, 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 the lesson which we can take from this incident is. That also we, in our worldly affairs, in our world, which we can consider or uh, uh, symbolically um, uh, subscribe as, as, as mentioned as Surab that we should follow his example and always stick to our convictions and always give preference over our religious, moral, and uh, spiritual convictions over. Um, other fears, even it might, even if it is in this sense, we have to accept the defeat or our own um, loss of our own lives.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, that I mean, very well explained how you know how, how Muslims around the world um, and different sects as well, how they commemorate and remember this uh, this event as well, and what they do to you know in 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 memory of this. Just um, talking about the event uh, itself, why is this event, uh, the event of Karbala, why and how is it so significant and dear to, to, to Muslims as well?
7: I think um, in this sense, it's very important for the Muslims that um, Imam Hussein uh, may Allah be pleased with him, he was the son of uh, Hazrat Ali, he was the grandson of the Holy Prophet Muhammad. And all Muslims, or rather Muslims, uh, you have a deep and very strong love and effect um, to, to not only the Holy Prophet but all his family members, all his dear ones. And in one thing, even the Holy Prophet stated that the one who loves Imam Hussein, he loves me. So in this sense that he phrased it in such a manner that um, a part of my love is to love my progeny, my, my members of my house, Ahlul and in this sense, um, the Ahlul Bayt are very dear to any Muslim, and um, we have deep respect and reverence for them. And it's such a horrific tragedy, and it really gives um, such, such uh, sorrow and grief. And also, at the same time, it's like a shock that um, all Muslims, out of their worldly and political desires, they, uh, they came to the decision to, to kill and assassinate in a horrific way Imam Hussein and all the innocent members of, of Archabad, and among them there were even small children. Hmm. Uh, in this sense, um, for us, it's, it's a really um, important incident to always remember um, the dear ones of the Holy Prophet and also their sacrifices to maintain the teachings of Islam and the will of the holy Prophet. As I explained, Imam Hussein, he and his dear ones, at no moment they were um, inciting towards a rebellious act against Yazid, or it was not due to um, personal grudge or difference of opinions which he had in this sense in, in, a, in a personal manner, nor did he act um, for any political ambitions or desires. His only disagreement was upon the title of the spiritual caliphate, or performing the bad of Yazid. And even here, at different points, he even offered himself that he's even ready. Um, to return to Mecca or to go to any place, any remote place, and live lonely and keep on living alone Even he offered himself to go to a battle um, for the service, uh, for the cause of Islam and to serve Islam against non-Muslims. Hmm. But um, he was just convinced that by doing his bad or accepting Yazid as the caliphate uh, or the successor, of the only person since, he is um, not completing with the will of the Holy Prophet Muhammad. In this sense, it's for us very important that Imam Hussein also acted and even offered his martyrdom um, as a, as a, his allegiance and his alliance to, to the Holy Prophet Muhammad. And in this sense, it's a very important event for us. And also, it is an important event for us to, to remember that, um, as I mentioned, that for us it's also important to always, uh, in the similar occasions of Karbala in our personal lives to show the same loyalty and show the same steadfastness and the same convictions which we find in all the prophets um, in the best manner we found in the in, the, in this example of the holy prophet Muhammad Sussram, and also in this case uh, in Imam Hussein during the tragedy of Karbala. Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Very well uh, explained uh, there is one how and why this is so important and dear for for all of us Muslims out there as well around the world, Imam Rwan Gil, all the way from Argentina. Thank you so much for for joining us this afternoon and uh, Assalamualaikum Warahmatullah. And have a have a lovely day. Salam Alaikum. Thank you
7: very
2: much. So when we talk about uh, when we talk about the reason why it's so in so important, um, our guest Imam uh, Imam Gil um a missionary of the community from Argentina explained uh, just explain to us how it's so important why it's so important and uh, you know how, how it's so significant as well for, for, for all of us as well where we rem- where we remember where we commemorate uh, this event and the, ha- the, the, the way that we commemorate the way that we remember this event as well. You know, different people, different sects in Islam, they have different ways in which they remember, in which they commemorate. But it's important how, how you know, we don't we don't start anything new, we don't make any innovations into into religion as well, because this is uh, something which uh, you know which is absolutely not allowed in Islam. But as he mentioned, you know, sending durood, sending salutations. Um, praying for the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, his progeny, um, you know, as, you know, Imam Hussain, may Allah be pleased with him, was the the grandson of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So remembering his progeny, remembering the companions as well, this is one of the reasons or one of the ways in which we can actually, um, you know, benefit ourselves from from this event as well. Let's uh, speak to our next guest who is on the line with us. Uh, Imam Ataur Rahman Khalid, a missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, serving in Ireland. alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the show.
3: Assalamu
2: alaikum, for having me. thank you so much for joining us this uh, this afternoon. Um, when we when we talk about uh, this event uh, which took place, uh, the Battle of Karbala, how do Muslims sort of you know? Uh, we spoke a little bit about this as well, but if you can also Give us some more information as well. How do Muslims commemorate this uh, this event?
3: Well, um, of course, this event is of great historical significance in Islamic history, and um, you know uh, the Shia brothers, in particular, as you are, since they have a special, they feel a special connection um, to this event, to this incident. So they have their their, their special manner in which they commemorate it, which has a lot of uh, physical uh, elements to it. So, you know, uh, just as the month of Muharram begins, they play the episodes in their minds of of how the events unfolded, which ultimately uh, culminated in the martyrdom of Hazrat Imam Hussain on the 10th mm. of Muharram. Mm. So, you know, they have deep, they express their deep, sentiments of sorrow and uh, sadness um on this occasion uh, as far as other muslims are concerned of course uh, no true muslim can be unaffected by this tragic incident uh, because we we are all connected we are we all have reverence deep reverence for the holy prophet muhammad wasalam, who was the, the 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 greatest prophet he was the seal of the prophets as mentioned in the Holy Quran, he was the chief of the prophets, and so because of our immense love for him, and this being his grandson, um you know, through his daughter Hazrat Fatima, um, where he had two grandsons, Hazrat Imam hassan and Hazrat Imam Hussain, uh, anhumah, may Allah be pleased with them both, um, and Hazrat Imam Hussain being the younger son, so. The fact that he was the grandson of the Holy prophet So there's a sentimental attachment of love and affection towards him uh, felt by all Muslims. and this was a really really tragic uh, event in the manner which he was martyred. And so all Muslims, um, although they may not uh, commemorate it in the way it is commemorated by our Shia Muslim brothers. Uh, but they they also feel the, the the sadness and the sorrow. And just as you mentioned earlier, uh, amdi Muslims uh, you know, also have these feelings, these sentiments. and so they recite the Sharif. Shrif. they they uh, you know uh, make greater prayers during this month. Well,
2: thank you, thank you for explaining that uh, to us as well. Um, talking about uh, this, the reason sort of behind, uh, this event, actually, you know, the reason why this event actually took place as well, um, you know, His Holiness, the the second Caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community, has he's written uh, a, a a piece on this, the outset of dissension in Islam, um, and talking, he's written, he's given us, uh, you know, you know, the examples of how and why this dissension was actually starting as well, and the reason why it sort of led up to this battle of Karbala and And uh, could you just tell us a little bit, a a little background information about this and also the reason how it makes this event of Karbala so significant?
3: Yeah, so um, the dissensions began in the period of Hazrat Usman for a number of reasons. As a Muslim, has explained these in the book which you just mentioned, The Outset of the Dissensions of Islam. So of course, time does not permit me to go into the details and mm. mention all the various reasons mm. as the Muslim has explained. But I would recommend anyone who is interested, they can go to alislam.org and access this book. Um, but just uh, one or two points. Huzum Muslim, the second caliph of the Muslim community, has explained that in the, the earlier period, you know, we're hearing Huzoor's Friday sermons every week as well of how Islam was expanding uh, the the whole Muslim empire, and, uh, you know, um, really, really expanded very quickly, um, you know, in the period of Hazrat Abu Bakr, and then in the period of Hazrat Umar, that, you know, there were so many Muslims who had not enjoyed the company of the Holy Prophet, mm. and so the the early fervor which with which they embraced Islam, it died down, and they had not had the training and... Uh, you know, company of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So, uh, afterwards, um, you know, doubts or questions began to arise and previous habits began to surface. Mm. And at the same time, so because um, Muslims were facing threats from different fronts, from the Roman Empire, from the Persian Empire, and a lot of effort was being consumed by warding off these enemies, that proper attention could not be given to their training. And Mm. so gradually, uh, these previous habits began to surface. And at the same time, uh, certain enemies of Islam uh, exploited such individuals, and and such individuals who had, on account of their um, actions uh, and crimes, they had received punishment um, under the Islamic rule. They collected such individuals in order to uh, bring down Islam. And this led to the martyrdom of Hazrat Usman and Hazrat Ali. Um, and and of course, we have the tragic incident of uh, Hazrat Imam Hussein's martyrdom. And uh, uh, of course, this is a very detailed uh, incident. But just to very briefly mention, Hazrat Imam Hussain, Anhu, um, in the period after the Khulafai Rashidin, which was a period of around 30 years, hmm. um, with the demise of uh, and martyrdom of Hazrat Ali, anhu, that's when the Banu Umayya Khilafat began with Hazrat Amir Muawiyah. Hmm. And after him, uh, he named his son as the next caliph uh, Yazid. And Hazrat Imam Hussain anhu, was not ready to in- initiate at his hand as he saw this to be uh, incorrect hmm. and uh, and so there was a great deal of pressure from other Muslims, and despite the the pressures he did not give in and he ultimately preferred to uh, you know be martyred uh, to take the cup of death hmm. instead of submitting to falsehood and and so you know Hazrat imam Anhu, who was I believe he was is born five years after Hijra. and this incident happened 61 years after Hijra. and so he was around 56 years of, uh, of age at the time mm. when when this uh, you know whole incident began to unfold, and he was uh, with a with a group of family and uh, members he w- he was in the area of Karbala, mm. where he was you know surrounded by the forces of Yazid. And, you know, they were um, subjected to very cruel conditions where even water was stopped from reaching them. Mm. And ultimately, um, you know, a, a battle ensued between Imam Hussein and, uh, and uh, you know, the Yazid's army. And uh, on the 10th of Muharram, Hazrat Imam Hussain, was martyred. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a, a deeply tragic event. And, you know, if we... Uh, look at the status of Hazrat Imam Hussein. As I mentioned earlier, he was the grandson of the Holy Prophet. Mm. Uh, the Holy Prophet وسلم, had, had a daughter, Hazrat Fatima, عنها, who was married to Hazrat Ali, the fourth uh, uh, Khalifa, Khalifa Rashidin. And uh, from, from them, they, they had two sons Hazrat Imam Hussain and the, the younger being Hazrat Imam Hussain.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So these were. The grandchildren of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, who the Holy Prophet ﷺ showed great love to. Um, you know, at times he would be in prostration during prayer and Hazrat Imam Hassan and Imam Hussain would come and on his, climb on his back and the Holy Prophet ﷺ would prolong his, his prostration just out of his love. At times he would grab the two of them and sit them in his lap and get them to embrace each other. And th- there's so many narrations which highlight the deep love the Holy Prophet ﷺ had for both of them. On one occasion, the Holy Prophet ﷺ, turning to Allah, he said that I love both these, um, you know, uh, of my grandchildren, uh, Imam Hassan and Imam Hussein." Uh, and so, oh Allah, you too I wish that should love them and, and all the Muslims should, should love them. So in, in various ways, you know, the Holy Prophet ﷺ has expressed his great love for both these individuals and so they they had a lofty station. And the Prophet ﷺ has mentioned that they are of the chiefs of the heaven. So they have a really lofty station, um which has been highlighted by both Holy Prophet ﷺ and by um uh the Prophet as well. And this in fact was a decree and uh, of Allah the Almighty this uh this, this tragic event. And it is of course of great uh historical significance and um, all Muslims are connected to it uh you know through through this this connection of love uh which they have for the Holy Prophet and for his, for his grandchildren.
6: Absolutely. Imam Khalid, uh, just one question. It might be not be uh, very directly related to, to Muharram and the events, but uh, uh, you know, on, on what grounds or on what basis we actually distinguish that up to this was the pious caliphate and then it is not pious caliphate? Um, on what grounds do, you, do we make this decision that we say that after Hazrat Ali, um, you know, th- divinely th- uh, appointed. Uh, yeah. Mm. So, so what, what are the grounds on which that ha- that decision was or has to be made?
3: Well, um, you know, the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. If you look at his hadith, you know, we we find that he himself uh, explained what would happen after his dem- demise, and he mentioned the advent of the Khulafa Rashidin, right? Yeah. Um, and and he has specified this this period of time as well of of 30 years and and uh so after that he mentioned that you know there would be uh kingship and then you know ty- tyrant kings etc and then e- eventually after a period of a thousand years of darkness eventually you know the khilafat ala min haji and Nubuwa would be established by allah the almighty so we we know that uh, islam was going to see a period of darkness when uh, the Holy Quran was going to be lifted. You know, the 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 meaning and the the spirit and kernel of Islam was going to be lifted to the Pleiades, and it was going to be brought by back by at the hand of um, you know uh, the the Imam Mahdi and the, the Messiah.
6: So, so that that's where the past Caliphate starts again. Absolutely. So,
3: so yeah. So, uh, of course, you know, based on the prophecy of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Uh, with the advent of the Prophet ﷺ, was going to be reestablished. With the a- advent of the Imam Mahdi, and he was going to unite, you know, the uh, the early Muslims, you know, the the companions, those trained in the company of the Holy Prophet sallam, <coughs> um, with with those in the time of the Messiah.
6: There is a, you know, there's a couplet by Hazrat Muslim Maud, the second caliph, uh, and uh, it's, it's very popular as well, uh, which, which is that, you know, They make you Hussain like, and themselves become like Yazid. What a good bargain it is. Let the enemy hurl arrows. Um, what is meant by this?
3: Well, well, of course, this this means that you know we see that Hazrat Imam Hussein was subjected to really cruel treatment by Yazid and and his his people, and uh, in the same way, and of course, Hazrat Imam Hussein was a brave and bold individual who, as I mentioned earlier, preferred martyrdom to falsehood. So, of course, uh, Imam Mahdi and the Messiah is is. Like Imam Hussain who would come and stand uh, up to falsehood and he would Re-establish the true you know teachings of Islam and so those people who um, choose to oppose This man of God who has been appointed by Allah Almighty and at whose hand you know All those prophecies of the Holy Prophet and the Holy Quran regarding the latter days are fulfilled in, who, in Whose person then if anyone stands up against him and tries to persecute him and and his community then naturally they would be more aligned to the, the Yazid and and his forces and so uh, Muslim, uh, so in this poem as a Muslim is expressing how it's it's a, such an easy bargain that you know we're ready to face such opposition because you know life has a in if we are right then this is surely a easy bargain through which we can win the pleasure of Allah the Almighty.
2: Absolutely, very, very well explained uh, there as well, Imam al-Rahman Khalid, a missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, serving in uh, in Ireland. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this afternoon, and speaking to us, giving us uh, some more insight and information about uh, the the Battle of Karbala, the significance of it as well and how we how we sort of remember and commemorate this uh this uh, <coughs> tragic event as well. Allah.
3: I, I think Nizhak Allah. Nizhak
6: Allah. thank you uh, the the best way to commemorate the event is actually to um to learn lessons from from what happened and uh, you know what was the purpose of the sacrifice mm. of Imam Hussain the on of The, peace. Peace. Uh, yeah. the um, you know obviously his sacrifice has not gone in vain, and of course, um, Islam of course, yes. uh, <coughs> Islam has obviously one need to learn lessons from the history, mm. and as these haven uh, these events happened that uh, an innocent person was uh, opposed by the tyrants, uh, and uh, he did not uh, you know he did not um, accept um, in even in those conditions that you know whatever, whatever happens there, he stood forth for the sake of the truth the truth and yeah. uh, even nowadays yeah. we uh, we face such incident and we see these incidents where people have been put into prison the people have been uh, <clears throat> martyred the people they have been uh, you know, um, target killings, massive, mm. um, you know, big, big incidences. Whereas, so all these things are not going to suppress the truth from uh, God of course, Almighty. Of course, if God Almighty has raised um, somebody, as the history tells us that um, the truth prevails. Those who have been appointed by God Almighty, even though they do not have the big resources, they are apparently weak. They, uh, uh, you know, they are not powerful the time but um, because god almighty is on their side so he is the one who uh, who makes sure because god almighty has promised in the holy quran that that i have written it down that myself and my prophets are going to be to prevail so so that 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 truth always prevails and Hazrat Imam Hussain. obviously we remember because um, he he was a a, a person who um, who became a symbol of sacrifice mm. for the mm. sake of the of truth uh, and the status of Hadrat Imam Hussain, obviously uh, mm. as uh, our community the the holy founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community he had a great love for uh, Hazrat Imam Hussain, Mm. uh, obviously because one reason was that he was directly related to the Holy Prophet of Islam and anybody who is related to the holy prophet uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. We do have a, a respect for him, but mm. he was not only physically related to him, but he stood for his, uh, principles, his principles and, was and he was a very yeah. pious person and he was uh, a very holy person. And uh, the, 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 the holy founder of the Muslim community has time and again mentioned that he was a noble man. And uh, at, at one you know, uh, um, he, he writes at, at uh, one place that uh, Hussain was a pious man and surely was from among the noble people whom God Almighty himself purifies mm. and fills them with his love and is from among the leaders of heaven and to hold even the slightest of grudges against him can endanger one's faith. His righteousness, love for God, patience, piety, and worship is a perfect model for us, and we are the followers of that guidance which was granted to him. Such a heart is completely destroyed that bears enmity towards him, but one that displays love for him through his actions and perfectly reflects every trace of his faith, morals, bravery, righteousness, patience, and love for God will surely succeed.
2: Absolutely, you know uh, the there, there is a there is a short uh, audio clip which we want to uh, play for our listeners as well, which speaks about the significance of, uh, of you know of this whole of this whole event as well.
8: Well let me first uh, tell you that uh, Hazrat Imam Hussain, as I just told you, uh, was a grandson of the holy prophet Wasallam. He had his elder brother Hadrat Imam Hassan, and he was the youngest younger than that, Imam Hussain. Uh, both were uh, sons of Hadrat Ali and Hadrat Fatima, tapa, who was uh, one of the daughters of the Holy Prophet. Hadrat Imam Hussain was born in uh, fifth year of Hijra, And this incident happened, as I just mentioned, in 61. So you can say about 66 years, uh, 56 or 57 years. So that was the age when this incident happened. So the early. In the early part of his life, one thing which we come across very frequently in the hadith, that the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam used to love his grandsons very much. There are so many narrations about that. He used to, you know, whenever meet them, kiss them and take them in his lap, in his hands and uh, sometime he used to make them sit on his uh, right leg and left leg together, embrace them together and he showed always that he was really in love with those and that's an exemplary thing and uh, moreover he used to say so many things, one of the things uh, which I recall at this time is that he used to say as if addressing to Allah Almighty O my Allah, I love these children very much, you also love them and those who love these uh, uh, those who love me they should also love them, something like this so various ways He has mentioned that these children were very, very dear to him. And we also read in some hadith that uh, these children sometime, very blessed children for that matter, because they were the grandsons of the Holy Prophet and also the recipient of so much affection and love. So they used to sometime come and sit on the back of the Holy Prophet when he was in prostration. And the Holy Prophet was so kind, he was so kind to all the children, but particularly to his own grandsons. (laughs) that he would just be sometime prolong this sajda, the prostration, sometime, you know, just take them off very quietly, lovingly, and only then he would get up. So these were all the expressions of his great love. Mm. So Hazrat Imam Hussain was that young blessed child as he grew up in his childhood.
2: So so that was uh, how the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, loved his grandsons, Hazrat Imam Hassan, and also Hazrat Imam Hussain, may Allah be pleased with both of them, and how, you know, how, how this sort of brings the significance of this whole month and this whole this whole incident of Karbala uh, uh, as well. Um, you know the you know this whole event uh, which took place. Uh, the 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 Khulafa, the Caliphs of the Ahmadi Muslim community have uh, you know have spoken about this as well regarding the incidents of Karbala. We find great love and pain. Of the promised Messiah upon whom be peace and his son has it has Bashir Ahmed may Allah be pleased with him narrates that once during the month of Muharram the promised Messiah upon whom be peace was resting on a bed in his garden when he called upon our sister Mubarakah Begum and our brother Mubarak Ahmed the youngest amongst his children and said let me tell you the story of Muharram then in a tone of great pain he related the incidents connected with the martyrdom of Imam Hussain. May Allah be pleased with him. And all the time tears were flowing from his eyes, which he would wipe away with the tip of his fingers from time to time. At the end of the story, he said in a great, in a great, uh, in a great anguish, this was the heartless injustice which the despicable Yazid had uh, perpetrated against the grandson, Of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him but soon after God seized these callous people with his punishment so it wasn't as if they got away with it Allah the Almighty punished these people as well in this world and uh, uh, if Allah wills in the hereafter as well so this you know all of these uh, all of these events they 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 remind us they remind us of uh, you know different events you know the the whole event which took place and how it uh, went about as well but also as you mentioned before as well that we need to take example we need to make this uh, take heed from this example and better our you know our spiritual status as well
6: mm-hmm. Of course, uh, you know the, the promised Messiah and the Holy Founder of the Ahmadiyya Community had a great. Mm. Um, he has mentioned very clearly that he has a Imam Hassan has a great, high status in mm. his eyes, and uh, <coughs> um, uh, 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 and we believe that Yazid was a worldly person mm. and he was a tyrant and. Uh, and he he would be among those about whom the Holy Quran says that these are the people who say that they have believed, but mm-hmm. they have only um, they have only accepted Islam, but there is and it has not Faith been implanted on their yeah, hearts. Yeah. So so that is the reason why he did not accept him to be as a as a caliph. I mean
2: that's the thing, isn't it? If 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 one is not uh, divinely appointed. If one, you know, if even the people uh, do not accept him, and then of of course, you know, the the will of God was and is that, you know, whatever he whatever he wills, he does whatever he wills. If he chooses someone, then he will let the people also uh, follow that person as well, his example. But if you just look at Yazid, and the way that he portrayed himself, the way that he became a sort of a a um, a, a power hungry you know power hungry bloodthirsty as well he wanted that uh, that power and uh, just like you mentioned uh, you know faith he, he was the one who who said that he believes he has accepted but faith has not uh, penetrated into his heart he has not become a a mormon you know a a, a believer he may have become uh, an outward muslim but a uh, believer is something completely completely else now, I mean, you know, there are other things which we can talk about as well, but this, this is uh, all we have uh, time for um, uh, today's on today's show. Today's show was produced uh, and researched by Sayyidah Tahida uh, Hassan, Soma Ahmed and Tayyibah Nasir. Zakula. thank you so much to them. And of course, uh, the technical support, uh, uh, Habib Sadiq in the technical studio. Of course, Dr. Tariq Bajus, It's always a pleasure to present with you on The Voice of Islam as well. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.